0: Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. hope uh, this uh, study is helpful this morning. I feel like uh, as I walk up here I feel like I could have used a few more hours of preparation. Is my mic not on? All right. How about now? Good. Okay. So I feel like I could have used a few more hours of preparation but uh, we will uh, by God's grace uh, get through uh, get through our time and study here and hopefully uh, the Lord uh, uses this passage in our life together. But we are uh, studying through Matthew's Gospel, and we are coming to the passage this morning of the familiar uh, temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, where following his baptism, he was uh, led uh, from the Jordan River into the wilderness of 40 days of of testing by Satan. So that's the passage we're coming to this morning, and so let's read uh, verses 1 to 11 together and uh, consider Uh, Consider what's before us today. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, help us now in this time to understand the passage before us and to benefit from it in our walk with you. May help us set aside distractions and remember that what we have before us are the very words of god uh, through the through the the miracle of inspiration to give us the scriptures this morning, so thank you lord for for the chance we have to do this, and may you bless our time. we pray in christ's name amen so this is a rich passage uh, on the temptations of Jesus, and it is uh, has has much to to teach us, but I think it's also been something of a Confusing passage at times. So, I, for example, in my study, I, I approach this passage with a number of questions. So, why? Why is it that God, the Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? What's the specific purpose for, for which he did this? What's the significance of this testing? A second question I had as I approached this passage is, in, in what way did these temptations appeal to Jesus? like if you read it, to me they, they seem strange like or, or non appealing these, these temptations, right So in the first temptation, uh, Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread, and my question is, okay, in what way was that a temptation and, and it's and it turning Stones into bread, a sin. In what way would Jesus have been sinning? In in the second temptation, it doesn't seem overly appealing, right? Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and and invites him to jump off in in hopes that angels will catch him. It's like, well, I've been to a lot of high places, and I've never been tempted to jump off to see if angels will catch me. And in what way would this have been a, a sin? And as we come to the third temptation... Uh, Satan tempts Jesus, if he worships him, he'll give him all of these things. And it's like, well, doesn't God own everything already, right? So so we have to understand what's what's taking place here. The final question I have as I approach this passage is, in what way do the temptations of Jesus relate to the temptations that you and I face? So Hebrews 4.15 says that they do. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet... Without sin, So, clearly, the author of Hebrews connects the temptations of Jesus to the temptations that we face, but in what way are they similar, right? Jesus uh, did not have a sin nature, and so he was never lured or enticed by his own desires. So, how, does, how do Jesus' temptations relate to our temptations? So, so, as you can see, we have a lot of work to do to unpack this passage before we get into the implications for our lives. So, let's, let's consider this passage together. and As we walk through this text, I'd like to organize our study into really three categories. This passage breaks down nicely for us. Uh, the passage begins with Matthew giving us the setting in verses 1 and 2. The passage finishes in verse 11 with Matthew giving us a conclusion to these events. And then in the middle, in verses 3 to 10, we have the temptations themselves, or this exchange between Jesus and Satan. So that, the temptations are bookended by the setting and the conclusion. So, so we'll, we'll break it down in, in, in those three categories. And then once we've done that, we'll unpack uh, sort of some implications uh, of this passage for our life as we think about temptation. So let's begin, first of all, with the setting in verses 1 and 2. Our passage, as you'll notice, begins with the word... Then, And I want you to remember as we look at this passage that in, as Matthew writes this gospel, there are no chapter divisions. So what, fo- what happens here in chapter 4 follows right on the heels of what happens in chapter 3. Now the word then a- at times can-, can be used for a considerable time gap. But here it's likely that the word then is, is saying that immediately following the events of chapter 3... Are the events of chapter four? So right after the baptism of Jesus, we have the temptation of Jesus. In fact, the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each link the baptism of Jesus with the temptation of Jesus. Luke places his genealogy in the middle, but but each one of these of the Synoptic Gospels places these events together. So we have here right on the heels of, of the baptism, we have Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Now notice as we continue looking at verse 1, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So this is a very intentional phrase used by Matthew. And, and each gospel writer uses these similar intentional Words or this intentional language to describe what's happening. So, for example, Mark in his gospel says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So here you have the Spirit as the one driving Jesus into the wilderness or leading him out there. Luke says something very similar to Matthew, that Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So here we see that there is purpose or intent in Jesus being led out into the wilderness to be tested. Notice also that the same Spirit who came on Jesus at the end of chapter 3 is the same Spirit that is now uh, leading him at the beginning of chapter 4, right? So the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now he's leading him in his ministry. The next thing we see that takes place in verse 1, as we're looking at the setting here, is that all of this took place in the wilderness. And one of the things you'll notice about this passage is that it, it, it parallels... The, the wilderness wanderings of Israel in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Now, I say that for two reasons. First, we see that, that Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, paralleling uh, the, the, the 40 years of wandering by Israel. But, but more clear, is what we see in this passage, is as Jesus responds to each one of Satan's temptations, what Jesus does is he, he responds by quoting Scripture. But more than that, the particular scriptures that Jesus quotes in response to Satan come from the wilderness wandering passages of Deuteronomy 6 through 8. So each one of Jesus' quotes here is from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. So so Matthew is making some kind of parallel between Jesus and the testing of Israel. So where Israel failed, Jesus would succeed as the perfect son of God. Of God, And I'll leave you to those references to sort of unpack that idea a little bit more. The next thing we see in verse 1 is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the specific purpose of being, and here's what our text says, tempted by the devil. Well, now right away, I think we have some questions, or we have a problem to consider. So does God lead people into temptation, right? That's what we have here. The Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it's, it's, it's a question of how should we think about this particular phrasing or this particular idea. Well, the phrasing, I think, is intentional. And I think Matthew is, is careful in the way he words this particular statement. Now, in doing so, I want you to notice that Matthew guards against two common errors when it comes to Jesus and God and temptation and and our temptations and and, and things like that. So what we have is Matthew sort of avoiding two different ditches and, and putting us squarely in the middle of the road and maintaining an appropriate balance. So first of all, Matthew guards against the error of blaming God for our temptations. So what Matthew says here is God is leading him, but Satan is the one who does the tempting. The scriptures are, are clear. We're never allowed to blame God as being the source of our temptations. Right? So James 1.13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So no, God is not leading Jesus into the temptation in the sense that he's causing him to sin. But the second error that Matthew avoids by by wording it with this intentional language is the error of crediting the devil with the power to act independently of God. Okay, Let me say that one more time. Matthew is protecting us from the error of, of crediting the devil with the power to act independently of God. So we sometimes think that the devil is is an equal and opposite force to God. And and, and God has no control over what Satan does. He's only there to merely counteract the acts of, of Satan. But this isn't what we find in the Scriptures. Satan always remains bound by what God permits. So... The activity of Satan in the life of Job is an example of this. God says, okay, you're allowed to touch my servant Job, but within these restraints. Okay, So Satan is not acting independently of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty allows and permits Satan to do certain things, but Satan is not off on his own acting on his own free ability and will. Now another thing we need to note as we come to this word temptation here in in verse 1, is that in Greek, the word temptation can mean one of two things. So, it can mean a temptation or a solicitation to evil, but the word can also be referred to as a test or a trial or a tribulation. Now, in the English language, we have two different words to communicate these two different ideas. We have the word temptation, we have the word test or trial, but in Greek, there's only one word, and it's the context that determines what kind of test or whether it's a solicitation to evil. And uh, the context determines that. Now, when Satan tempts Jesus, his intent is to solicit him to evil. But, but God is, is, can, can sovereignly use even the temptations that Satan brings to strengthen his children in, in terms of, of testing. And, and, and proving their character so you remember that, that god is always sovereign over even over the over the over the evil acts of of man okay genesis 50 verse 20 tells us that that in the life of joseph he says you meant evil against me but god meant it for good so the, the actions of joseph's brothers were evil they had evil intent but god in his sovereignty is working even the evil things done out for his own good purposes. Okay. So here, God the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And Satan's desire is to make Jesus sin, but God's testing in proving the character of Jesus as the divine Son of God. Now, with these thoughts in mind, let's move into the question of why. Why is it that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And from what we see in Scripture, this is an important passage because all three Gospel writers refer to it. And then Hebrews comes back and says that Jesus was was tempted like we are. So this is an important passage. I think we have to answer this question of why Jesus was tested in the wilderness. And there are multiple layers to to this question or multiple layers to this answer. So first of all, note, that the battle against sin and temptation and against Satan shows us why Jesus came to this earth. Now one pastor helpfully has compared the the events in these verses to the first 100 days of the presidency. Right? It has been become typical over the the over the last decades to 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 talk about the first 100 days of when a when a president comes into office. What's the plan for the first 100 days? And, and that plan for the first 100 days usually sets the agenda for what the president is all about. So they come in and they immediately put things into action. They undo all the things that they think were a bad idea that the previous guy did. Hopefully we'll have some of those here in the coming months, okay? But... Um, I digress, uh, but, but what you get is an idea of the agenda of, of this particular individual. What we have before us here are the first 40 days of Jesus' ministry, and he's showing us what he's all about. He's all about defeating sin and temptation and defeating Satan. Now, Genesis 3.15 has already told us that there would be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And as as his ministry begins and Jesus comes on the scene, this is the first mission he undertakes, is to start going after and colliding with the work of Satan and to begin destroying sin. So that's that's one aspect of why Jesus uh, is is tempted in in, in the wilderness and and does battle with Satan. The second aspect I think we need to notice is that the wilderness temptations relate specifically to Jesus' new public identity as the son of god okay so so this is an important point to consider i want you to catch this in this passage right so in 317 jesus has been baptized and he is publicly identified as the son in whom the father is well pleased Now, as we continue into chapter 4, the specific temptations Satan poses relate specifically to this new public identity of Jesus. So notice verse 3. Satan says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. And then again in verse 6, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of uh, verse 5, and he said to him in verse 6, If you are the Son of God. So the Son of God, that phrase is repeated three times in just a handful of verses, and and, and these temptations specifically relate to Jesus' identity. Now, later on, we're going to see that Jesus is is tempted in other ways by Satan. Luke tells us in in, in his account that 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 Satan would wait for another opportune time, Luke 4.13. But these specific temptations relate to his identity as the Son of God. So the question is this, then how would the Son of God live? And would the Son of God submit to the will of his Father? And that's what we see in these particular temptations. They're connected to Jesus as the Son of God. Two more other, two, two other reasons why Jesus was tempted, or two other purposes. We'll move through these quickly. But Jesus is showing us what it means to fulfill all righteousness. Right? Like he said in chapter 3, verse 15, he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. As the sinless Son of God, Jesus would live a perfect and sinless life that we could not live ourselves. And that's his mission in coming. And then lastly, Jesus is giving us an example of how we are to face testing and temptation ourselves. Okay. So, this is the, this is the setting. We should note one more thing, though. In verse 2, we see that Jesus is fasting for 40 days. And that's what Matthew tells us in order to set the, the table for what's taking place here. Now, Let's move in to consider the temptations themselves in verses 3 through 10. And as we consider each one of these temptations, I want to break it down into three categories uh, for each temptation. So, first of all, what I want to do is I want to consider the temptation itself. Okay, so what was the temptation that Satan was proposing? Secondly, I want to consider what was the appeal. Or in what way would this temptation have been appealing to to Jesus? And then thirdly, I want to consider what the sin would have been had Jesus given in. Okay, So we'll look at the temptation, the appeal, and the sin. Now as we consider the temptations of Jesus, it can be confusing to know what the sin would have been. Like I've already said, in the case of temptations 1 and 2, was there anything sinful about jumping from a high building? Was there anything sinful about turning stones into bread? And so we can't. We, we sometimes have a hard time understanding the nature of these temptations. So when we, when we want to understand the temptations of Jesus, what we need to do is this. We need to consider both what Satan proposes and the response that Jesus gives. And when we put those things together then we start to understand what the temptation was and what the sin would have been. And so Jesus' responses often explain in more detail what what Satan was proposing. So let's begin with temptation number one. And let's look at verses three and four together. And the tempter, okay, he's called in this passage the devil, he's called the tempter, he's called Satan. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so Satan says, if you are the Son of God. Let's let's first of all consider the temptation. Okay, what was the temptation here? And Satan says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, in using the word if, Satan is not doubting whether Jesus is the Son of God or not. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. James tells us, even the demons believe and they, they tremble. But what Satan is saying is something like this. If you are the Son of God, don't you think it's a good idea to, to prove it? Or, in other words, let's see what you can do, Jesus, and 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 let's let's see you perform a miracle. Okay, so this is the temptation that Satan offers. Now, what was the appeal? Like, in what way would this have been appealing to Jesus? Well, the reason this would have been appealing, it has told us in verse two that he is gone without food for forty days. He's in the middle of fasting, and the end of verse two tells us. He was hungry, all right? So this would have obviously been uh, an appeal to Jesus. Now, the question about temptation one, though, is this. As we move into the sin, what would the sin have been if Jesus turned these stones into bread, all right? He had the power to do this. And we'd say there's nothing inherently sinful about turning stones into bread. In fact, later in the Gospels, Jesus is going to perform a, a similar miracle, right? Right? He's going to feed the multitudes with, with, with loaves of bread and, and fish. So why would it be a sin now to turn stones to bread if he performs a similar miracle later that is, um, that, 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 that is not sinful? Well, in answering this question, I want you to notice two things. First of all, notice this. That the miracles Jesus performed were intentional. Okay, The miracles Jesus performed were intentional. They were not intended to be used for random purposes or self-gratification. Okay, so just think, for example, if you and I had the ability to work miracles, in what way would you and I use our power to work miracles? Well, now some of the more pious among us would say, oh, I would do a lot of really good things. But most of us would be like, well, if I'm sitting in traffic, I'm clearing, I'm clearing things out, I'm, I'm, I'm making an easier path for myself, or we're going to eliminate Culver's, Taco Bell, and Arby's, and we're putting a Chick fil A right there across the street from Sashabaugh. And they're going to be open on Sunday, right? So that would, be, that would be the kind of ways in which we use our miracles. They would be self serving and, and uh, for, for random purposes. Okay, but Jesus' miracles were for the purpose of revealing his identity as the Messiah. Who would come and establish the kingdom. Now, we're going to get into this as the chapters really, as, as chapter four continues of the purpose of Jesus' miracles. But Jesus is not in the business of doing miracles just for the sake of impressing people or impressing Satan, most of all. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to know is that Jesus' miracles were, were intentional. But secondly, notice that Jesus' miracles and I'll say this all of his ministry was performed in submission to to the will of God the Father. So note two other passages. Just We could probably reference others, but two others. Uh, John 5.30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because, he says this, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then he says in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who who sent me. Now, in this temptation that that Jesus or that Satan proposes to Jesus, the text doesn't tell us this directly, but I would say that it seems as if if Jesus would have used his power to turn stones into bread, that that would not have been consistent with the father's will for him, nor with the purpose of his miracles. It seems that even as Jesus is fasting, that that's part of God's will for him in the desert. And so it would have been a sin to give in to this particular temptation to Satan. Notice Jesus' response. He says in verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the sin would have been to pursue self-gratification over God's will and word for his life. But instead of pursuing the short-term satisfaction of of earthly pleasure, it is more important to Jesus that he live according to the word and will of God. His meat was to do the will of his Father. Okay, So that's temptation number one. We'll come back to unpack some of the implications in a few minutes. Now move to temptation number two. And read with me verses five to seven again. Then... Okay, so here's temptation number two. Now, what was the temptation? Okay, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and he attempts to convince him to jump off and to see if angels will catch him. Now, again, this can be confusing if we don't understand all the details of what are taking place here. Like, in what way would this have been this sinful, right? So we don't understand everything that's taking place here unless we, we unpack the whole, the whole section. So, to encourage Jesus further as to why he should jump off this temple, Satan himself offers scriptural support for why Jesus should leap from a tall building. So Satan quotes here Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. We have Satan quoting scripture in order to convince Jesus to do this. And I would argue that Satan doesn't even twist the words of scripture. Right? This is something that the Son of God should have the ability to do, to, to call angels if he is in need. There's a, a later passage in Matthew 26, 53, where they're arresting Jesus and Peter takes out his sword and he cuts the ear off of the guard that's attempting to arrest Jesus. And, and Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? I could call, and he says, 12 legion, legions of angels if I wanted to. And he puts the, the ear back on the guard. Right? So it's possible that Jesus could, could, could call angels to, to, to deliver him if he were to jump off this high building. Now what's the appeal? Now, in, in what way would this be appealing to Jesus to, to jump off here and to let angels deliver him. Well, I think the appeal is that in doing so, he could shut Satan up and prove that he was the son of God, right? If I, if I just do this, then I can show Satan, yep, see, look, I am the son of God, and there is the end of the discussion. Well, but then the thirdly, we have to ask, well, then what would the sin have been if Jesus gave in? Well, we see this in Jesus' response in verse 7. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he quotes here from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which is an interesting quote. It's interesting because Jesus doesn't quote the whole verse of Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Let me read for you the whole quote of Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Deuteronomy 6, 16 says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he says this, as you tested him at Massah, well, okay, so what happened at Massah? Well, that takes us back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7, where we have this incident of the Israelites complaining that they don't have water, testing the Lord, and the Lord uh, allows Moses to strike the rock with his, with his staff, and, and out comes water. But it's not a happy passage, because at the, as the passage finishes in Exodus 17, 7, it says this, And he called the name of the place Massah, or Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, this sin of, of testing was really a lack of trust in the provision of God. Now, what Jesus is saying when he quotes this passage to Satan is he's saying that, that God is, we're not to test God in this way. In other words, we're not to foolishly manipulate God by doing stupid things and and seeing if God will, will actually deliver us from this foolish circumstance. This is what the people of Israel did. They didn't believe and trust in God's provision, and so they acted in foolishness, asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? So it would have been a sin to try to manipulate God into acting by jumping off of this high building. Now, this leads us, lastly, to the third temptation. And look at verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only, Shall you serve? Okay, so what was the temptation here? Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world. And it's unclear whether he can (coughs) see all the kingdoms or whether there's some sort of vision taking place uh, here. And, And in this temptation, Satan promises to give all of these kingdoms to Jesus if Jesus will only bow down and worship Satan. Now notice two things though, okay? So the idea of worship here is not just bowing down, it's serving, right? Because verse 10 says you are to worship and serve the Lord your God. So Jesus would have had to to probably serve Satan in an ongoing way if he was going to receive these kingdoms. But also notice that this was an authority that Satan possessed as the current ruler of this world. God had permitted Satan and is permitting Satan at this time to be the prince of the power of the air under his control and restriction. But this was an authority that Satan had and the ability to give this to God or Christ. Now, what was the appeal? In what way would bowing down to Satan to receive the kingdoms been an appeal to Jesus? Well, the appeal of this temptation, I think, is this. He gets to rule as king without the agony of the cross. okay. Because remember, Jesus will one day reign as king, but only after he was the, came as the suffering servant who would atone for sin on the cross. And would that not have been appealing to skip the agony and receive just the glory? And so I think that's the appeal of this temptation. Well, what would the sin have been? Well, it's, it's quite obvious here. As we see in verse 10, it would require worshiping someone else other than the true God of heaven. You know, it's interesting in this passage, because when Satan poses this temptation, you notice that Jesus' response here is different than his other responses. He gives Satan a strong rebuke here and says, Be gone, Satan. And then he quotes from deuteronomy chapter 6 there's a similar conversation well in other words what 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 satan was offering jesus was a chance at having the glory without going through the agony of the cross and there's a similar conversation that happens in matthew chapter 16 where jesus responds in a similar way go to go to matthew chapter 16 with me if you will In Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus has this discussion with his disciples, and he's asking them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give different suggestions. And you remember Peter responds rightly in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and and Jesus commends him for his proper confession And says on on him and on this right confession, he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against him. But then you come down to verse 21. And he says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter was offering Jesus the same temptation that Satan was offering the glory without the agony. And Jesus had no place in his mind for a a, a path to the glory that didn't involve submitting entirely to God's will all the way to the cross. And so Jesus rebukes both Satan and Peter sternly. So these are the temptations that we have before us. Now we come to the conclusion of this passage in verse 11. The passage finishes in verse 11 with, with these words. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's an interesting conclusion, and it's a little bit ironic, right? So the devil leaves, and the angels minister to Jesus. Now, the irony is that the thing that the devil proposed in Temptation 2, for the angels to come and minister and, 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 and deliver Christ, Jesus receives Anyway, without giving in to testing, we'll come back to that thought in just a moment. Now, what are the implications of this passage for our life? And I have seven implications. I'll work through them quickly. Okay, as we look at this passage and we think about the temptations for our own life, oh, notice notice these things. The spiritual peaks, number one, the spiritual peaks are often followed by the valleys of testing. Okay, the spiritual peaks are often followed by the valleys of testing. So in this case, with the temptation of Jesus, he goes from his baptism, where he sees the heavens opened, the spirit descending, the voice of God being heard, and now he's driven into the wilderness to be tested. And this is often how it is in our lives. We have spiritual mountaintop experiences and before long we find ourselves in the valley of testing. One minute we're defeating the prophets of Baal and the next minute we're depressed and wondering if God is for us. So let us not be surprised when we encounter these circumstances and know that when things are going well they can and often do get bad quickly. So be prepared for that the second implication of this passage is that every test is under the sovereign control of god and he will not permit us to be tested past his ability to sustain us so again this was the case with jesus right he's tempted by satan yes but god was sovereign over all that took place and he would not be tempted beyond what the lord allowed this is the message of first corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 no temptation or test has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, that phrase in and of itself is, is encouraging because whatever temptation or test we face, it is not unique to us. Okay? We face the, the same temptations as normal human beings. But we also see in this passage that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God in his sovereignty is allowing testing in your life but he intends to be there all the way with the grace to sustain you each step of the way. I'm reminded of the the old hymn State Upon Jehovah. Every joy or trial falleth from above traced upon our dial by the son of love. So we may trust him fully all for us to do and they who trust him wholly will find him wholly true. Thirdly, notice that we have the word of God with which to fight temptation. We have the word of God with which to fight temptation. Now, I preached a whole sermon on this just two weeks ago. All right? So we won't rehash all these, these truths, but, but notice that the, the scriptures are not a magical potion to give to the tempter in times of of trouble and tempting, and then he just disappears. Okay, we often think that the word the, we we get quoted that if you, if you memorize the Bible, you can throw it against temptation, or the the words of a hidden in my in my heart that I might sin, sin against you. But what we emphasize there was, it's not the words I've hidden my head that I might not sin against you. It's that we as as we are exposed to Scripture over the long term, our hearts are shaped. By the truth of God's word. So when temptation arises, we're already in a position of defense because our hearts and minds have been shaped by the truth of God's word. Okay? That's how Jesus lived, in submission to the word. So when we're living in submission to the word, when temptation arises, we can easily identify its flaws and resist because we are, are shaped by the word over the long haul. Number four, notice an implication that most of our temptations are along the same lines of Jesus' temptation. That is, wrestling with pursuing self-gratification over God's will. Okay, So this was the case when, in, in, in possibly turning the stones into bread. Either he was going to satisfy his hunger, or he was going to live in obedience to follow after God's will. And this is usually the decision we're making in, in the face of temptation. Are we going to give in and satisfy this, this immediate desire we have or are we going to live in submission to the Lord? Notice, fifthly, when we fall to temptation, it is often a lack of trust in the goodness and provision of God. Right? So the, the, the verse that was quoted there in, in Exodus chapter 17, they were testing God and they were doubting His provision. They were asking, is the Lord among us or not? Okay? When, when we don't believe that God is is good, and we don't believe that God provides and has our best interests in mind, then we are tempted to step outside of those bounds to to, to find that goodness ourselves. And when we do that, we're showing a lack of trust in the fact that God is good and promises to meet our needs and care care for our souls. Okay, number six is related, implication number six, that often in giving into temptation, we will short-circuit God's plan in order to get what we want when if we would have patiently followed him, we would have received it anyway. Okay, That's the irony of, of, of the end of the passage. The angels minister to Jesus. So he could have short-circuited things and received that which, which, you know, which he desired outside of God's will. Or he could have patiently followed God and he ends up receiving that same thing Anyway, and this is how we often approach temptation, right? We pursue the things that we want, and we're willing to step outside of God's bounds to get it, where if we would have just patiently followed the Lord, he would have provided those things for us anyway. And one of the examples we, we, I just wrote down in terms of a note was, was in terms of this idea of, of immorality or sex before marriage. Right? We think we have to have this relationship and satisfy these desires, when if we would have just waited, God would have given us all these things anyway after marriage with all the blessings and without the guilt and in the purity of a, of a God-honoring relationship. Right? But that's always the temptation is to, we want things now rather than living in self-control when God would give these these blessings in the future anyway. Lastly, we see the implications of this passage is we do not have to give in to the temptations that we face because we have a Savior who has been tempted as we have, yet without sin. And he has, he has lived and he has shown us the way of victory. And he has freed us from the the, the slave the enslavement of sin. And as Hebrews chapter 5 emphasizes, emphasize he, he is able to empathize with us in our weakness. Now the temptation when we do something wrong, whether we're 5 or 55, is to distance ourselves from the accountability or the authority against whom we've done wrong, right? So you know this when you're parenting small children. You can tell when they've done something wrong because they, they act funny or they act strange and they, they distance themselves. And, and you're like, in fact, in fact, when we had a dog, the dog would do this and that drove me nuts. But anyway, that not, has nothing to do with the sermon. It just came to my mind. But um, they will distance themselves in, uh, in, in, in this way and, and we'll, often, we'll often do the same thing. Now the tendency when we are living in a way that doesn't please the Lord, is to distance ourselves from, from God. But I want you to listen to the encouragement of Hebrews chapter 4. Don't, don't you turn there, just listen to how this passage goes. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, And we're familiar with that verse, but sometimes we forget the next verse, verse 15. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? When we're faced with temptation and we're giving into temptation, what's our our tendency? To distance ourselves from the Lord. To not draw on his grace and, and help. But what the passage says here is, no, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he himself was tempted. Now, he's not tempted in the the identical ways that we were tempted because he didn't have a sin nature and he wasn't lured and enticed from within. But he faced the temptations of this life and faced them to their full extent and never gave in. And in that, he is able to empathize with us. And so the encouragement of the author of Hebrews, then, is is don't run from him in the face of sin, but run to him in the face of sin so that you might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So the example of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4 is is to be an encouragement for you and I to run to Christ in the face of temptation. So I hope that these words are an encouragement to us this morning as we face our own temptations, are tempted with self-gratification to live foolishly and not according to God's will. May this passage teach us and motivate us to run to the Savior to find grace and help in time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the time we can spend in this passage and the the truth of Jesus we've just seen before our eyes. Lord, we are weak and feeble people who give in to temptation often and sometimes believe we're the only ones who, who live like this, and so we're discouraged and we draw away ourselves away from you and from the brothers and sisters in Christ here. But Lord, there's no temptation that faces us that isn't common to our other brothers and sisters in Christ here. You're sovereign over all things and you provide a way of escape. But but most beautifully, Lord, you have given us Christ who who is able to empathize because he lived as a man on this earth. And if we run to him, we will receive grace and mercy to help in, in time of need. So, Lord, may this study encourage our hearts to draw close to you, to resist the devil and to humbly draw on your grace and love each day. We need your help, so use it in our passage. Use this passage in our lives today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.